all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics, here with you today, live, taking your calls on any kind of questions that you might have about the health of yourself or the health of someone uh, near and dear to you. The number to call if you have a question uh, about that health care, whatever it may be, is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email us if you're not able to call in. Uh, The email is remedy at mpbonline.org. So good to be back with you this morning live. Uh, Had to be out last week. Uh, One of the meetings that I normally um, attend out of state, uh, of course, was canceled, but we still had to do the meeting. So I logged in a lot of WebEx time. I know a lot of people are doing that, whether you're working from home or connecting with other people in different venues. But uh, logged about 15 hours over three days. So that was quite... uh, quite a WebEx. So I think all of us are getting a little weary, but getting much more proficient with some of the electronic means that we can uh, use to to do what we need to do these days. So hope you're staying safe out there. And a lot of people have been hit hard by uh, coronavirus. Uh, Just in the state of Mississippi, we're approaching about 4,800 total cases and unfortunately about 183 deaths in the state. Um, I think everybody, you know, looking at the numbers and what we see and the, the, certainly the, the officials that are in charge, uh, everybody's doing a, a really good job of uh, trying to distance themselves. I know we have a, a, a date coming up next week where we're going to loosen some of those restrictions. Just want to caution people that doesn't mean going back to the way things were, say, four months ago. Uh, this really, you have to be vigilant, even though you're going to be out maybe a little bit more and have those opportunities to do that. Uh, Hand washing, again, extremely important. Social distancing, extremely important and trying to stay about six feet away from people. Um, Masks can be helpful, particularly if you have the virus but don't yet have symptoms. So So it's not as good as preventing you from getting that from somebody else, but certainly from the spread of people who don't have it. So I would recommend that. Uh, you know, that's changed over time. We're going to see some changes based on the numbers and how they're coming in and what our, um, you know, what the experts are saying on, on what we need to do. So hope everybody is staying safe, uh, safe as they can. Uh, don't forget that there are many different ways that you can connect with your physician during this time. Uh, there are wonderful new ways of doing visits that we've had a lot of experience with in the state of Mississippi. Telehealth visits are certainly new. I've seen telehealth patients now for over four weeks in my own clinic and with our residents. And uh, although it's a little, have to have a little bit of a different way of doing things, it does allow us to continue to provide health care for individuals that don't require um, a 
physical face-to-face visit. So take advantage of those things. Um, Certainly, if you have symptoms, uh, not just of COVID, of of anything else, you need to to call your healthcare professional, call their office and say, hey, I've got this going on because there may be some ways that they can help you out that don't require you to go in and risk an exposure. Beautiful weather um, that we're having with some of these uh, restrictions being lifted. I hope people, if you're able, uh, will take advantage of that, take advantage of the, of the uh, opportunity to get outside. One of the pluses about living in the state of Mississippi is that we have wide uh, open spaces and not uh, in most of our communities uh, that where we can get out. So certainly if you're doing that and you're more than six feet away from somebody, taking all those precautions uh, certainly that's, that's a great way to improve your health during this time. This is uh, Southern Remedy, the number to call if you have a question about anything related to your health. Uh, maybe it's with COVID, maybe it's with something different. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 We had uh, a couple of emails that uh, Kevin sent me um, that I thought we would... Uh, go ahead and <clears throat> tackle a couple of these. The first <clears throat> is a common uh, common complaint of chest pain. So uh, the uh, email submitter says, hi doc, both parents died of heart attacks and recently my sister died suddenly of a stroke. I take lisinopril, which is a blood pressure medication, and Crestor, which is a cholesterol medication for my, for my cholesterol and health. I've been having chest discomfort. I went to the urgent care emergency room twice and had a normal EKG. I was referred to a cardiologist. A stress test suggested abnormalities. I was prescribed metoprolol at night. I had a nuclear stress test uh, with no chest pain and then a cardiac catheterization in February with no blockages. Um, I had come back in three months uh, I have been feeling better until a few days ago when the chest discomfort discomfort returned. Is there any other cardiac reasons for how I feel besides blockages? So that's a common question about chest pain. You know, when we teach this to medical students and residents, I like to think of, of any kind of symptom. There's a couple of different ways that you can look at it. Uh, chest pain, I think of anatomy and physiology. So what are the structures in the chest? And what are some of the things that can go wrong with them that might be causing that chest pain? So there's a lot of things in the chest besides the heart. There's your lungs, there's your esophagus, which is the tube that connects uh, the the lower part of your throat uh, to your stomach. There's all kinds of other structures that are in there. There's the pleura or the the covering around the lungs. Uh, There are the muscles in between your ribs, uh, all the ligaments and everything that sort of connects things for your rib cage and your sternum, your breastbone, uh, all those things, the muscles overlying those can generate pain if there's something going wrong. So you have to really take a good history and and get to the bottom of that. Now with uh, our patient uh, who sent us an email, it sounds like they had a pretty exhaustive workup for cardiac type pain. And this is exactly the type of patient that we would be concerned about uh, having heart problems. So Risk factors for heart disease tend to be things like diabetes is a huge risk factor. High blood pressure or hypertension is another risk factor. High cholesterol. And then uh, other things that you can modify, uh, like smoking, uh, uh, sedentary lifestyle, all those things can contribute to that. 
Um, family history is important, even in individuals that have a very active lifestyles and may not have a lot of risk factors. If they have more than one individual or even one individual who has had a heart attack or a stroke at an early age, that does put the, the other person at risk for that. So those are going to be people that we uh, screen a lot more um, uh, than we would uh, for heart disease and then probably put them on medications that might uh, address that heart disease. So in, in our case of our, our listener, uh, she was put on a couple of different medications. Metoprolol is a beta blocker, and it's typically added to somebody who has a suspicion of having a cardiac chest pain. Uh, it also lowers, lowers blood pressure and lowers heart rate, but it's been shown uh, for decades to be beneficial in somebody who has uh, heart disease. So that makes sense about why they did that. The different tests that they had done is sort of a stepwise approach. If you have symptoms that sound like um, that the chest pain might be from your heart, one of the first things that you can do is an EKG. So that's the test where they just stick a little, the wires that have a little sticky uh, glue to them to the chest wall, and then they get an electrical tracing of your heart. And that can be beneficial in some instances. You can have heart disease and still have a normal EKG, uh, but if you're having chest pain uh, while they do the EKG, that increases how sensitive that test is and maybe picking up on that. The next step would be to do a stress test like our listener described. And there's multiple ways that you can do that. Some of the stress tests would have you do an EKG, but you're on a treadmill or they're giving you substances that would increase your heart rate or stress your heart in a way that recreate maybe some of the increased oxygen demand, which might show, uh, show uh, a, an area of the heart that might not be getting good um, uh, blood flow. So another thing um, would be uh, a uh, cardiac catheterization does a couple of different things. So it, it basically shows you where, uh, those, um, where those lesions, those blockages and arteries might be. And then while you're there, they can also do something with that. So they can, uh, they can put little stents, which are these little metal cages that deploy and open up that uh, blood vessel. They can do all kinds of other things to try to get that, um, get that opened up. So I would say if you had a negative catheterization, in other words, a normal catheterization that doesn't show any blockages, usually you're pretty good for about 15 years, 10 to 15 years, unless something dramatically changes. So I think your chest discomfort is probably due to something else and knowing that. Um, so I would explore other things with your physician. Doesn't have to be the cardiologist, but things like reflux, which is common. Um, all those other structures I mentioned, those are other things that sometimes you can, um, you can uh, address. And then also um, anxiety can certainly do it. And certainly we have a lot of increased stressors right now. So uh, sounds like it's probably not heart related, but you might want to just touch base with your physician uh, and, and see if there's any other reason why you might be having that. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you live today answering your questions about uh, your health concerns that you might have. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Kevin, How's it going with you these days with uh, uh, trying to uh, adjust to this new sort of lifestyle? Uh, Pretty good. Fortunately, uh, I've been able to come into the station to do a little bit of work each day. Kind of helps me keep a routine. And I think that's uh, what really has thrown a lot of us off track is that, you know, an off kilter is just our normal routine has been so disrupted. And I know I took took one day off and it was a Thursday and I got so mixed up as to what day it was that I decided that I could figure out something to do uh, at work every day for a little bit. And that's, like I say, been helping me kind of stay on track. I also have been enjoying the weather to get out and exercise, although that leads me to another question I had for you about allergies. You know, I think when I was growing up, like a lot of kids mowed the lawn, never had a problem with the grass and allergies and sniffles and, and congestion and that sort of thing. But I've noticed, especially in the last year or so, uh, that I do need to, you know, uh, wear a mask or something, or I'm, I'm having a lot more allergic reactions when I'm out there mowing. So what is that about allergies that you cannot have them for your whole life? And then all of a sudden, here I am getting all uh, dreary eyed and, 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 and wheezy. Yeah, it's the, the immune system is tied to that. So it's very interesting. Um, you can develop allergies. A lot of people have a, a preconception that just because you you had allergies when you're younger, maybe you're going to grow out of that. Or if you didn't have them when you're younger, you can't develop them. You can develop an allergy to any substance, really, uh, throughout your whole life. Uh, so there's the possibility of that. Now, some of the more common players in the South, particularly uh, some of the symptoms that you mentioned, are due to seasonal allergies. And these tend to be things in the environment that we're only exposed to during different seasons. Uh, Pollens are a big one. So we have a lot of, uh, certainly in Mississippi, we're a very green state. Uh, We're very, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of pollens throughout the year, but our main seasons tend to be in the spring with tree pollens and then the summer with Uh, mostly grass pollens, and then there's the second season of grass pollen in the fall. Um, Now, certainly you could be allergic to other things, but in years where we have um, milder winters and more rainfall early, a lot of times the trees will just explode, this year being one of them. And even though you may not have had a whole lot of symptoms in the past, that burden of increased pollen counts can sort of rev up the immune system to think, oh, this is a foreign substance that I need to deal with. And you can have a lot of those allergy symptoms like sneezing, even a cough, um, uh, post-nasal drip, watery eyes. Uh, Some people get hives. uh, We call it urticaria. That's just raised portions of the skin uh, that can come up. Uh, A lot of people have skin allergies uh, as well from those. 
So um, and, and it probably has to do with with that exposure from year to year. We know that when people move to different areas of the country, particularly if it was areas that had lower pollen counts to a new area, it takes about two to three years before they'll develop that allergy to that those new pollen. So, for instance, if you were moving from the west coast of California to Mississippi, it'd be about two years before you really, if you were going to have allergies, that you would really see that. Um, and there's just no way of getting around a lot of that in the state of Mississippi or even in the South. Um, you can do a lot of things to treat that. Certainly their avoidance is, is the biggest one. So if you can avoid some of those allergens, particularly if you know seasonally what those are, again, if there's pollen in the air, it's sort of hard to do that. Even if you're not staying outside for prolonged periods, uh, one of my sons, uh, if he gets outside more than about 20 minutes to an hour in the early spring, He's going to come in. It looks like he's been hit in the face just because of all the watery eyes and uh, nasal drainage. Another thing you can do is treat. Uh, if you know and can predict that you're having those symptoms, there are some good treatments for that uh, to sort of cut down on the immune response in, uh, in localized areas, particularly if it's, it's symptoms that are related to your nose and nasal passages. So if you've had a lot of uh, post-nasal drip uh, or boggy, uh, just sort of stopped up nose. Uh, Flonase, which is a topical steroid, uh, is a great way to treat that. A lot of people just do that seasonally when they know that they're going to have the peak of their allergy symptoms. And then antihistamines are another one. And uh, antihistamines, most people are familiar with Benadryl as a short-acting antihistamine, it tends to be much more sedating. There are other antihistamines that are longer-acting, like uh, the generic versions of Zyrtec, Claritin, Allegra, all three of those are over-the-counter and safe to use. Um, decongestants, which a lot of people use, you have to be a little bit careful if you're elderly or if you have other uh, chronic health conditions where you're taking other medications, just check with your doctor to make sure it's okay to take those. Those are probably okay to take for about three days to try to uh, get a lot of that bogginess out of those nasal uh, passages. Then once you get to that point, you can use antihistamines after that. But the topical... Um, the topical steroids like the, the fluticasone or Flonase tend to work the best. The other thing is a lot of people will get by on nasal washes. Uh, so uh, that's just a saline solution that you can mix up at home and use a couple of different things. Neti pot's one way to use that. And it basically just washes off those nasal mucosa, that sticky stuff that's in the nasal passages. It takes a little bit of getting used to, and this is not just like a nasal spray. It's a pretty large volume of water, a couple of hundred uh, milliliters, where you gently wash through those passages and just sort of wash out all those allergens. A lot of people will get by just with that and uh, don't have to use any kind of uh, uh, medications. You want to make sure your water's appropriately sterilized for those, of course. But yeah, Kevin, you can certainly develop that at any time. And there's no real rhyme or reason for that. It's just the body's way of the immune system is adjusting to different things. And for some reason, it sees those that pollen as something that it's going to mount up an immune response in the form of all those symptoms you're having. Well, in my case, I was lucky because uh, I let my yard go a little bit uh, long and some uh, uh, local high school kids were cruising the neighborhood with their fledgling business. And so now I have contracted out <laughs> to have them mow my lawn. So solution <laughs> temporarily solved on that one. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Jimmy, we do have a caller. So let's say good morning to Alice, who's called in from Macomb. Go ahead, Alice. Hi, 
right. Good morning. I'm going to talk the best that I can. I just want some more information on something that I got that I never heard of. They uh palsy. Bell's palsy. Bell's palsy, is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So how long have you had that? I, I got it on the uh, 9th of uh, April. And okay. it's getting better. It's getting better now. I can talk better. So I want some more information. Sure. So Bell's palsy, you know, that's one of those medical conditions that's named after somebody. Most of the time, those are named after the person that was the first described in or the physician that that discovered it. So uh, the fancy name is idiopathic facial nerve palsy. So the, the nerves that control the movement of the face sometimes can be damaged. Um, and usually this is, this is caused by a viral infection. So you'd get a virus uh, and have an infection like an upper respiratory tract infection. And most people, if you ask them about it, that precedes this. It happens before in about a couple of weeks uh, to a month. And then after that, you'll notice that you have drooping. In fact, it can be so subtle that, uh, you know, somebody else uh, in the household may notice that. So you'll see drooping on one side of your face, and it can be just real subtle and maybe in how you smile. Sometimes it can be pretty profound and affect everything on the side of the face up to the eyelids. Uh, so all of those, um, you know, all those symptoms can be indicative of that. So uh, most of the time, this goes away on its own. If you catch it early, um, and early being a, you know, a couple of days into it uh, to a week, you can treat it with oral steroids. Um, and uh, sometimes even uh, if you suspect that a virus is, uh, uh, particularly uh, herpes simplex virus, is one of the, one of the things that, uh, that, that we can actually treat with a medication called acyclovir. So, uh, but, but the steroids are probably the most important thing. If, if you didn't get that early on, chances are you're going to have at least some improvement. You already said that it's improving somewhat. Um, that's good. That's a good sign. You want to, if it does involve the lid of your eye, you want to make sure that your eye's not getting too dried out. So uh, a lot of times they'll prescribe some drops or gels that you can put in your eye, like artificial tears. Um, to keep it from, from getting dried out, particularly uh, at night. Sometimes I'll use patches as well. Um, are you getting any physical or occupational therapy? Did they, did they recommend that? No, they just gave me uh, three different kinds of uh, medicine. Uh, yeah. So that's probably the steroids and maybe even the antiviral medication and probably something else. But um, if it's not getting better, sometimes physical therapy where they can sort of train you specifically how to use those muscles on your face. Um, that's something. These are three different medicine they gave me. Uh, I mean, that there are two different medication they gave me. Phenosone, uh-huh. something like that. And then another V as in Victor, A-L-A-C-Y-L-O-B-I-R. Yeah. So the first one was the steroid that I mentioned, and that's just to help that inflammatory process around and sort of quiet down that process around the nerve. The second one you mentioned was the antiviral uh, medication. So that's exactly what they, they should have done. But this is usually caused by a virus 
that sort of a, attacks that nerve um, and, and in conjunction with your immune system. So that's, that's the perfect treatment for it. Most of the time, this does get better. Um, now, it could recur. It could come back. So you need to be aware of that. <clears throat> you need to, if, it do, if you get the symptoms again, say in a couple of years or 10 years or so, uh, you want to uh, make make sure you're reaching out to your doctor pretty early on because they probably would treat you with the same thing. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your health care questions. Uh, it can be about anything. Maybe it's a new medication or a new diagnosis that you have, or maybe some symptoms that you can't quite put a finger on it, or anything else that you're concerned about. You can call us this morning at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always send an email to us. We do read those. We try to get back to you in a timely manner and also from time to time, we'll batch those or share those on a program uh, if we feel like it's an issue that everybody needs to uh, to hear. You can send that email to remedy at mpbonline.org. So, Dr. Jimmy, earlier in the show, you mentioned uh, telehealth, and I know that we're trying to have a kind of an in-depth uh, discussion of telehealth for a future broadcast. UMC, very involved in that. But uh, maybe if you could give us just a, a quick idea what what it is like uh, a telehealth visit, as it were, maybe from both the patient uh, and the, the doctor's perspective. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, as you mentioned, at UMC, we've been involved in this uh, for a number of years and um, have are one of the centers of excellence nationwide to try to uh, to try to use this in ways um, to reach out to patients in situations where we can't they can't come to the office. You know, particularly in Mississippi, one of the advantages of telehealth is it allows us to reach out um, to people who have to drive a long way to get somewhere, or if they need follow up either after a hospital visit or after a clinic visit. Uh, for something that can be handled that way rather than have them come. Uh, we have, it's not uncommon to have patients drive four or five hours uh, just to come to their clinic visits. So it's a way that we can do that uh, and keep up with their healthcare needs. So from the, from the experience of it, basically what you're doing is you're using either a, uh, a phone or another device to connect with your doctor either by audio only. Uh, so just like if you pick up the phone and called somebody or audiovisual. So if you have a, a, a camera on your phone or iPad or tablet or computer, you certainly could do an audiovisual visit so that you can look at them. There are other things that, that might be involved in that. Now, telemonitoring is sort of an extension of this, 
where you would have some special monitoring a device that you'd send out to a patient that maybe, for instance, would monitor their blood pressure, maybe it would monitor other things, uh, and then uh, include that in the information that's sent back. But if you're a patient, this is what it would sort of look like. This is the way I'm doing my visits is uh, normally on the day that I see patients, patient would come to the office. Instead, you would get a call if you were the patient from one of our nurses in clinic or someone else that would register you the same way you would register in the clinic. Uh, they would ask you all the same questions about that that they normally would. And then depending on the way that you can access either, you know, by audio only or audio visual, uh, they would set you up to do that. Now we have here, we have several different ways to do that. Um, uh, several different apps or programs. We can do it depending on what device you have. And then um, you would connect with your physician uh, or your healthcare provider, and they would go through the visit in the same way that they normally would, uh, minus the physical exam. Obviously, you know, the, the visual part, we can do some things visually um, uh, through tele, telehealth visits. Uh, but if it's obviously, if it's just audio only, we could not do that portion of it. Vital signs, those kinds of things. A lot of times we're uh, asking our patients to monitor that, like high, high blood pressure, their blood pressure monitoring at home. And then you go through the visit. Uh, your physician would document all that in the same way that they would. And then if there's anything that needs to be done, they would uh, address those things. They can certainly refer you to other people. They can refill your medications. Uh, and it gives you a chance to really interact with your physician in a way that, that closely resembles that, that in-person visit. Uh, so again, it's not to take the place of it. It really augments those. And this is a perfect example where we don't need to have large amounts of people, particularly with symptoms that could be something like coronavirus coming into the offices. But we do need to continue that care. And this is one way that we can do that. And we're probably going to see this increase in frequency. Um, and again, there's some areas that we utilize telehealth to connect with physicians. So, for instance, the emergency department here has done this for years uh, where they have connected with other emergency uh, department faculty uh, in other parts of the state. Uh, subspecialists have used this. Dermatology has used this to reach out. And uh, instead of waiting uh, to see a dermatologist, you can go ahead and get a picture of that. Uh, have a consult with a dermatologist through telehealth, ask some questions of the patient, and really, um, you know, it helps to extend the care that you can get out to the patient and where they are. I would imagine if you do have the video component with dermatology, that would really be a, a big help because, you know, instead of someone having to maybe to describe what a rash looks like or where it is, you can actually show the doctor uh, what, what you're suffering from. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the specialties in particular that uh, it's really been very helpful. Quality of the image sometimes, uh, you know, uh, affects that. Uh, they are also doing uh, virtual consults. So, in other words, if a physician such as myself, if we see something, a lesion on the skin, and we want to, you know, want to get a consult from a dermatology, um, a lot of times I can take a picture of that and then do a, a consult that way where I can send the picture, give the clinical scenario, sort of what happened, how it, uh, how it came up, how it was first recognized and what's been going on, other medical conditions. They can take all that into account and most of the time give us a, a you know, very accurate diagnosis and treatment options for that patient so they don't have to 
uh, wait for that visit. So that's one example of a specialty that's done that. Cardiology actually has done this with follow-ups of patients, heart failure. Um, there's very good data that this actually decreases a lot of the, the complications that you can have and a lot of the deaths that you can have from, uh, from heart failure by following patients up with telehealth visits and with those extensions, some of the monitoring devices that we have. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. If you have a question for Dr. Jimmy this morning, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 Dr. Jimmy, next on the line, we have Renee, who's called in from Utica. Renee, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, I would like to know. My mother is 76, and she's taking Plavit. Is it necessary for her to take an aspirin every day along with that? So, uh, great question. Plavix is a a blood thinner medication. It's most commonly used in situations where you don't want to have a clot in a vessel. I'm I'm guessing this is probably either from uh, some previous problems she's had either with her heart or from a stroke. Is that correct? Heart failure. Heart failure. Right. So, heart failure is one of those uh, conditions where, where that would be appropriate to do that. Now, Sometimes you need what's called dual platelet anti uh, dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, so Plavix works in in one of the ways that uh, that platelets sort of stick together. Aspirin works on a different pathway, but in, in a similar um, um, area. So sometimes they would want you to take both of those, depending on what the risks are. But I would lean heavily on her uh, on her heart doctor, on her um, cardiologist, to say, hey. Does she need to be taken both? It's a simple phone call. The nurse can probably say, yes, she does, or no, she doesn't. But there are some situations where you might be on both the aspirin and uh, the Plavix, but you just need to get that information. But that's that's a common thing that, um, depending on all of her risk factors, just not knowing all of those, uh, you know, I can't really give you the answer to that, but I, I would just call them and just clarify that, whether or not she needs to be on both. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Got another email question here about osteoporosis. 
the uh, listener writes, hello, Dr. Jimmy, what are your thoughts on the osteoporosis medication reclassed? I am scheduled to receive an infusion of this uh, medication this month, and I am concerned about getting in because of the side effects that I've read online. Is there a support group of folks who currently take the infusion that I can communicate with and get firsthand thoughts from other users? So uh, Reclast is a medication that is used to treat osteoporosis. So osteoporosis uh, is uh, thinning of the bones to the point where there's a significant risk for fracture. Uh, it tends to be most common in postmenopausal women, um, although you can see it in men, you can see it in other individuals. Uh, a bone density test is needed to really see what your risk is and classify you as either just having mild thinning of the bones, which is osteopenia, compared to full-blown osteoporosis, which is the, the worst of the two conditions. There's a number of things that you can do to help prevent this. Um, the best prevention, particularly if you're at risk um, and uh, you have a strong family history of osteoporosis or fractures, is early on to get enough calcium and vitamin D in your system and to do load-bearing exercises. So things that sort of stress those bones, help make them thicker, those can be something as simple as walking to other things where you're sort of dancing, jumping around, those kinds of things. If you've already got it, though, uh, there are some things that you can do to treat it. I'm sure uh, in this case, uh, our listener has already taken uh, adequate amounts of calcium and vitamin D. You need a steady stream of that calcium coming in because it's used for other processes in your body other than just building up bones. Vitamin D, the same kind of thing. Uh, if you have deficiencies, particularly of vitamin D, it's extremely important because it doesn't matter how much calcium you take, if you don't have an adequate supply of vitamin D, you're not going to be able to utilize that calcium. If your body needs it and you're not getting it in your diet, it's going to suck it out of your bones and those bones are going to get thinner with age and put you at risk for those fractures. Uh, in addition to doing those two things and doing some regular exercise, there are a there's a class of um, medications called the bisphosphonates. Bisphosphonates act at the bone level to uh, those cells that help lay down more bone. Uh, it stimulates those cells to do that. There's two different uh, ways you can take this. One is orally. So there's a pill that you can take. There's uh, a couple of different medications there. Uh, Fosamax is one. Um, uh, that, that's just one of the more common ones that's been around for a long time. Now, the infusion, which is an IV form of this medication, uh, it's a little bit different, and it binds directly to the bone, and it, it acts for a very long period of time so that you only have to have this on a year-to-year -year basis. And usually, in most instances, it's just a three-year course, and then they'll re-evaluate uh, whether you need it after that. So it's one time a year you go in for the infusion, and it keeps working for up to a year to help strengthen those bones or to at least help uh, prevent any further bone loss. There are some, um, uh, she mentioned the, the side effects of this medication. There are a lot of, certainly if you read the package inserts for a lot of things, they'll have anything ad nauseum about that. One of the more um, uh, side effects with this whole class of medications that a lot of people are concerned with is osteonecrosis of the, of the jaw. So that's where you have actually a breakdown of bone and in patients that have risk factors, in particular, those who have uh, chronic problem, dental problems, if they've had recent dental surgeries, 
if they have poor dentition or uh, gingivitis, uh, inflammation of the gums, all these things can put you at risk for having this, and you may need to think about other reasons. So I, I'm not aware of any necessarily support group. What I would do is I'm guessing that, um, you know, most of the time a rheumatologist would be somebody who would be overseeing this, although there are some other doctors that may be doing it. I would ask them to put you in touch with some people who've already had that, um, and they can probably, uh, you know, point you to, to some of those uh, directions. Now, if you go online and look, you're certainly going to have probably more on the negative side, just because that's the type of, of websites that are out there, the risk of that osteonecrosis of the jaw is actually quite low. And if you don't have a lot of risk factors, your risk of having a fracture, and particularly if you're elderly, that's going to have a lot more uh, negative health outcomes than, than the risk of the osteonecrosis of the jaw. So I would talk to them. But, and again, there's other things that you need to do. It doesn't mean if you take the reclast or one of the other medications that you can stop taking the uh, vitamin D and, um, and uh, calcium. You still need to do that. They're probably, particularly with the reclass, they're going to get some lab work to make sure your calcium is okay and probably increase the amount of calcium just before you take uh, the, do the infusion. And then also to look at your kidney function to make sure that it's appropriately uh, working to, uh, to try to minimize some of the side effects. So first person, rheumatologist, if you haven't seen them or talked to them, I'd do that. And they can point you in the direction of, uh, of, of more people to talk to. All right, uh, Dr. Jimmy, we've got about uh, five or six minutes left in the show. And I know that uh, a lot of people have heard about hydroxychloroquine in the news. And I was going to ask about that, but maybe more of a general question that you could help us with. And that is, you know, we're all anxious for a vaccine for uh, COVID-19 or some medications used to treat. Uh, what can you give us maybe sort of a just a general timeline of, of how these things uh, go through the process of maybe discovering them and then checking to make sure they work and that sort of thing, both maybe for medications and vaccines for uh, diseases like this. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, you mentioned it. We're always we're looking for hope with this. Right. And everybody is feeling the brunt of this, either economically or health wise or both. Uh, mental, uh, you know, stress certainly has been increased with this as well. So as far as the treatment goes for this, there is a certain uh, way that medications are tested, even if the medications have been out there for a long period of time. And that's the, the main reason for that. There's twofold reason. Number one, is this medication going to work? And you may have instances where you give somebody a medication and they get better, but it may not be directly related to giving that medication because there's so many different variables in particularly in this illness, there's just not enough data to say, okay, that medication worked. And I know a lot of people are frustrated because they, they hear that or they see that. And there's certainly a lot of physicians that are using it in ways that it's not designed for a lot of medications, including hydroxychloroquine. But we really don't have the data to support that yet. Uh, so what you have to do is you have to do a very controlled way of giving the medication to see if it's going to work. And then the other side of that is, is it going to be safe? Um, even if it's safe in other situations, it may not be safe if you're treating coronavirus or if you're treating other, uh, other uh, medical conditions. So all of those processes do take time. Uh, most of the time, this is, you know, at the very least, a, 
medication that's been out there and used in other ways. Uh, we're looking at at least six to eight weeks uh, or maybe even a few months before you have the preliminary data. A lot of times uh, we may even have data longer than that that shows the long-term side effects of treating it with something like this, even after you stop the medication. Um, clinical trials are the, the way that you do that uh, with all of these medications, and certainly uh, there's a lot of those going on. Uh, we're uh, looking to participate here at UMMC in nine of those uh, with uh, either medications or uh, serum antibodies from uh, from people who've already uh, who are recovered from from COVID. So all of this is uh, something, and how you use the medication too, not just in treating the patients that have COVID, but what about treating patients, uh, treating people who are at high risk but don't yet have the virus? Vaccinations usually that's a 12 to 18 month process. Same kind of things that you have to look out for. Is it going to protect people? Is it going to be safe? Uh, is how long is it going to last? So there are a number of vaccine trials going on as well, uh, but uh, that's that is a longer process probably than most people realize, and um, that's that the reasons a lot of the the loopholes uh, have been created to uh, try to grease the skids on that, make it a little bit faster. But again, safety is one of our biggest concerns. The first tenet of good medicine is to do no harm, so we want to make sure we're doing that. So not a, you know, a lot of people would come in. I've had my, some of my patients ask, hey, why don't you just go ahead and put me on the hydroxychloroquine I'm at high risk? The reason is we really don't have good data yet to suggest that that's going to be a medication that's going to be protective, and it may have some negative side effects. Hydroxychloroquine is used to treat lupus and um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. It's an anti-inflammatory drug, uh, anti-immune drug, sorry. Uh, it does have some anti-inflammatory uh, properties. Uh, it's used uh, in with malaria too in years years past. So a um, lot of other medications, losartan, remdesivir, uh, dag dagofloxacin. Uh, uh, I, sorry, didn't say that right, but basically a lot of mo monoclonal antibody treatments. Um, all of these things are being looked at, but it's going to take a while to really understand how well they're going to work, if at all. So also, though, don't they need people to volunteer to kind of be human guinea pigs, for lack of a better word? Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily like the term guinea pig, but basically, if you are a patient that fits into the criteria for these, again, to try to keep you safe and monitor things, uh, certainly those people who have COVID-19 uh, and are currently being treated for it, they're talking to them, they're talking to their families to see if they want to be enrolled in these studies. Uh, and again, it may or may not benefit you, but it may help it, uh, other people as well. So, um, you know, all of those are very closely monitored. They have to be approved locally uh, by an internal uh, review board that looks at mainly the safety of the patients who are being enrolled. So it's it's um, that's really important. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.